Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Rough Draft. I am your host, Reza Aslan. On the pod today, we have National Book Award-winning poet Robin Costa-Lewis. And man, leave it to a poet to just cut through all the bullshit and say exactly what is on all of our minds. This conversation, I have to be honest with you, is probably my favorite one of all our Rough Draft episodes, which was kind of a surprise to me. I'm a big fan of Robin's work, and especially her National Book Award-winning book, Voyage of the Sable Venus. What Robin did was go around the world visiting museums and checking out all the exhibits that, in one way or another, represented the bodies of black women. And these exhibits went all the way back to the ancient past, like to ancient Samaria or ancient Egypt, all the way to present day. And what she did is she took the title and those little cards you see at museums, right? Those little description cards that you see that sort of tell you what you're looking at, help you understand what you're looking at. And she simply took those descriptions and she put them into verse. And by doing so in a chronological fashion, Using just those museum descriptions, she has written a book of poetry about the way in which black women's bodies have been understood, have been displayed, have been abused throughout human history. And the result is breathtaking. It's extraordinary. So you know someone who is able to do something like this has a lot to say about subjects like feminism or race or politics or economics. And what I love about Robin is that she is not shy to say exactly how she feels, just like a poet would. So we talk about poetry, what poetry actually is, what does it mean to express yourself in found poetry, which is essentially what she is doing here, how words can convey multiple meanings, and how words can actually help define, for better or worse, how you see yourself as a person. And what I love even more about Robin is that she said she would only do the show if we invited some younger poets on as well. And that's exactly what we do. We have two young black female poets who are gonna perform for us at the end of this show, Markeisha Babers and Monique Mitchell. You are not gonna wanna miss that. So without further ado, here is my conversation with National Book Award-winning poet, Robin Costa-Lewis. Robin, thank you so much for being here. It's so exciting to have you here. I'm, I love your work. I love your writing. This is the uh, debut book of poems, Voyage of the Sable Venus. Right here, this little sticker says, <laughs> winner of the National Book Award 2015. Yes. Actually, the first time, I believe, that an African-American uh, writer 
has won the award with her debut book of poetry. So congratulations. Thank That's really so incredible. incredible. Thank, you. Um, thank you so much. For me, what was very special about that is that the last time uh, debut had won was 1974, mm. and it was Marilyn Hacker. And so we had a nice little feminist bonding moment on that. And then before that, it was a person I don't remember. <laughs> but it had been decades before. So it was a tremendous moment historically for poetry. I mean, yeah. the book is incredible. There's, there's so many extraordinary poems in here. But the heart of it is this sort of um, almost epic narrative poem that is comprised wholly of titles and catalog descriptions of works of art, Western wor works of art, yeah. uh, going back, I don't know, tens of thousands of years yes. that feature um, African-American women and sort of the bodies of African-American women. Right. How, how did that idea come to you? It's, it's so creative and it's so brilliantly wrought. I'm just curious you. how you came up with that idea. Thank you. I'll offer a corrective if you don't mind. Absolutely. It's actually um, black female figures from all over the world. Oh. So it did start off as um, being an investigation of mostly African female figures or mm. African American female figures from colonialism. But then the more research I did, the more I realized that how pervasive the objectification of all female figures. Sure. <laughs> I could have written a book about white female figures, it would have been just as <laughs> atrocious. Um, but all uh, black female figures, and it just kept going, and I couldn't look away. No matter where I went, I traveled all over the world for many years. Then I started, then I had a kid, so I started traveling all over the world from my bed online <laughs> yeah, right. with barbecue chips and sure. the baby in my arms. Um, and no matter where I went, no matter what culture, continent, time period, you name it there is the gross, mm -hmm. heinous objectification of black women in all art forms. And so then the poem was gonna be three pages. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> and then it turned out to be that. 79, <laughs> yeah. So what was the genesis of this? I mean, was <clears throat> it something that, that you sort of stumbled onto? Or yeah, I stumbled a, a onto this etching called The Voyage of the Sable Venus. Yes. And for me, it was quite delicious because it was a, image of a black woman on a clamshell based mm -hmm. on Botticelli's Venus. Right. So for me, before I realized what it was, and I'll tell you in a minute, <clears throat> it was this beautiful figurative kind of exaltation of a black woman on a clamshell being drawn through the waters by Poseidon and cupids and a couple of dolphins. feathers, yeah. dolphins everywhere. And <laughs> I was like, and I knew immediately, immediately that it was at least 18th century, and I knew it was harking on classical references, and I knew that I had never seen anything like that yeah. in my life, because I grew up seeing, the only images of black people I grew up seeing in my textbooks were of lynchings mm. and black people be, uh, picking cotton, which at this point I'm convinced it was determined and on purpose. Um, it, it, it's actually, it's an extraordinary uh, <laughs> painting. If, if, if you haven't, people haven't seen it, you've got to Google this thing. But you, you write about it, which I, I had never heard of it before, mm -hmm. and I, I, I had to go and, mm -hmm. and check it out. But I was so curious the way that your, your thinking process when you see this painting, and it is, it comes from, I think, 1801 is, yeah. is, what, is what you well, say. So really the that's the painting, of, but the engraving comes from 17. Oh, like, so there's an, right, there's an yeah. engraving. But nevertheless, the, the height sure. of the, the slave trade Absolutely. at the time. And 
you uh, quite naturally are just perplexed by this painting. Right. Like, what's it supposed to mean? Right. And you say, how at the height of slavery could a black woman be drawn by dolphins through the pri primordial seas, adored and attended by the gods and angels of classical Greece? What's going on in this painting? Well, unfortunately, so tri uh, trident or Poseidon, I'm not sure which god it is because you can't really tell. Uh -huh. um, instead of carrying a trident, he's carrying a flag of a Union Jack, which means that it was a pro-slavery image. So they were carrying her to the Caribbean to, for slavery. And uh, instead of holding on to the, she's got reins that, reins. It, it looks like these dolphins are carrying her over the yeah, water, yeah. but the reins are strangely totally. attached to her yes, wrists, exactly. which is not how exactly. one normally carries That's reins. exactly right. What, what kind of a right. fucked up mind? Exactly creates this kind of image. Right. What, what is being said? That, the same, that, it, that it's sort the of the same a, mind that creates colonialism. And slavery like, and all of that. All, the, yeah. all that's included in that, you know. I mean, I don't think, I, sure, the image is sick and heinous and gorgeous and heinous and gorgeous, <laughs> right? Sure, of course. Yeah. But, you know, it was, it was created because the world that they lived in at the time was heinous and heinous and heinous. What I should also say about that image is that it's based on a poem. And mm. this is even worse. So the poem uh, was written by Thomas Stratford. I think I'm getting his name correctly. Uh, and the poem is a pro-rape poem. Literally, he's celebrating. Wow, just when you think it couldn't get just, worse. Just when yeah. you, that's, that's Western just colonialism for worse. you. Just when you think it can't get worse, you can't make it up. You can't make it up. And so the poem is a, a sonnet. <laughs> Do you, do you know any of it? I'm sorry, no. no. Oh God, I would never commit that to my mind. I would never let that in my psyche. Um, but it's, uh, he's talking about basically if you rape a white woman or a black woman in the dark, if the candles are out, it's fine. Oh Jesus Wait, wait, Christ. wait. You won't feel repulsed. <laughs> the rapist will not feel repulsed by the rape victim being a black woman if the candles are out. Yes. I mean, yes. Seriously. Welcome to Western culture. I mean, this is this is a thing more and more. I mean, I now have three graduate degrees, and so at this point, I'm like, come on, you yeah. guys. I mean, can seriously. we stop pretending? Because there's some of it is just really, really stupid. It's not even just insulting, crazy, pathological. All of these things that we tell ourselves and we romanticize about yeah. Western culture. And and listen, there are a lot of things I do very much appreciate about Western culture, but. Having said that, this is the same culture that thought the world was flat and that black women could be raped yeah. at night by in, without a candle yeah. so, you, you, so that the rapist wouldn't be repulsed by her dark skin while he was raping her. And yet you say that when you first saw the painting, oh, you immediately fell in love with it. Are you joking? Why? Because, first of all, there was a black woman in the center of okay. That's the what canvas. I thought you were going to say. Yeah. There was a black woman in the center of the canvas. You thought and it was a celebration. My life, in all my life, I'm... In my mid-50s now, I had never seen that, and I would like to uh, suggest to your viewers that they have never seen it either. Mm -hmm. If you just think for a minute about the visual history of your perception in your own little personal life, just go ahead. I'll wait. Think about it. <laughs> have you ever seen, right? And I, I think that's why contemporary images in hip-hop and things like that are also so tantalizing mm. for us, besides the fact that the work is so interesting, is that you have figurative representations of all kinds of bodies, right? Finally, in the middle of the frame, right? Because except for Voyage of the Sable Venus, 
the 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 work I was looking at, you know, there'd be like a slave woman hunched over mm. behind a column, mm. but just her face looking up, mm. you know. And I grew up with that all the time. We were never the subject. We were never the subject. Never, not ever. It's it's funny. I mean, it's it's the it's the perfect. Uh, title for the book. It's a perfect metaphor for the project that that you've you. um, uh, decided to undertake. It's also uh, grotesque and all those things that, that we were talking about. But there's something just like uniquely evil about it because you. It, it's meant to <laughs> give you, you this. Yeah, right. It, it gives you this sense, this moment in which, for just a brief moment, you, you feel pride and you feel like oh my goodness like someone has finally uh celebrated the the body of a black woman yeah. uh, and yeah. and it's a joke it's that's a what it is joke. it's a it's a con thank you that's it's a what total it is. con you're only the second person who's mentioned this to me did you feel conned by it did you feel like you fucker yes <laughs> yes it's a pro-slavery image I'm, they're draw yeah. not only okay so this is what's deep about it because Europe at the time was really still and probably still is enamored enamored with this idea of classical Greece and classical Rome uh -huh. being their great ancestors and the, you know mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. if there's some strict continuity between all those cultures yeah. and as if, as if it's one culture as opposed <laughs> to they killed your parents they killed your parents right. and they killed your parents too right we can't have those conversations <laughs> about the violence that took place in Europe so that you know the fantasy that they're all one people is just ridiculous that said right the image is so interesting because it's the Greek and Roman celestial figures, right? So <laughs> it's anciently ordained yeah. that they're, you know, drawing this poor black woman into slavery. She also has in some very hot panties, right? She does. They're, she they're, does it's have really, some. They're I think like you describe bloomers. them as European panties. <laughs> they're bloomers <laughs> with lace, you know? And it's just, it's a great, it's... Yeah. It's colonialism at its most evil, surreal best. So you use um, this image as kind of the starting point for this grand project. You're going into museums all over the world. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not so much paying attention to the object itself, right. but more importantly, to the words that are used to describe yes, the object. Exactly. And, and uh, there's this wonderful moment in the epilogue of the book where you say, like, by the end, you're just sort of crawling around on your hands and knees Absolutely. in these museums, getting all the, the stink eye from, you know, the various Absolutely. docents and guards. Are gonna, what is that woman doing Absolutely. on the ground in the museum? Right. Not looking at the thing, right. but looking at how it's described. Right. And, I mean, in and of itself, I think that, that's, a, that's a marvelous undertaking. But that is also a metaphor because yes. part yes. of what you're doing here in this work, and we're going we're gonna to dig deep into this in, in, a, in a little while, is talking about the way that we even understand images, right? That, that we need words to help us understand what our eyes are seeing. Mm -hmm. And those words are going to be written by different people yes. using different filters yes. coming from different parts of the world. Yes. And essentially how they describe the thing is how you are now going to see that thing. Right. And it's obviously a testament to the power of words, which yes. Yes. we love that stuff. Yes. Um, but it also is a testament when the object is a black woman's body right. to this unceasing, never-ending attempt 
to control this thing, to define it, Absolutely. to interpret it. Absolutely. And to also create a myth about Western art, mm. right? Um, a myth of art as liberation? As denial, mm. really, right? So, for example, there's uh, a great painting, there could be a great painting of some, <coughs> excuse me, European emperor, always on a white horse, always with red and blue colors of some jacket, flying and, you know, trailing behind him. Total queen, which is fantastic, but we don't <laughs> want to talk about that. <laughs> Talking about the queering of the empire. But then what was interesting to me is I would look at the frame, right? I remember very distinctly mm -hmm. this one frame where the carved black naked bodies of black women, right? Mm -hmm. All around the painting. So I would use the title because look how they framed it, yeah. right? But you're not supposed to notice that there are these multiple black figures in the frame and bent over, naked, doing something subservient. You're not supposed to notice that at all because the name says, I don't know, Napoleon rides off into the Alps, right? Your eye goes to Napoleon, you don't notice the person right. in the corner. That's right. And I was really interested in the people in the corner we're going to talk a lot more about um, the poems themselves, but uh, one thing that I was really fascinated by is at, at a certain point you talk about the work as a form of autobiography. Yeah. In fact, you say quite, quite uh, interestingly that it's an autobiography without an I, sure. right? A sure. An autobiography in which the I is not the protagonist. Right. What, what do you mean by that? Well, a couple of things. Virginia Woolf, of whom I'm quite fond, her anti-Semitism, and all her other major problems aside, um, she, she's a very hard character to swallow, mm -hmm. but I, her writing is brilliant. Um, she said once that I is only a convenient name for someone who doesn't have a real self, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think, in, especially in America now, we fetishize the first person so much, right? Um, I am only interested in using I and definitely only interested in talking about my mm -hmm. life if I'm going to think about it historically and politically, right? I don't think I can... Look, let me put it this way. I'm, I'm deeply committed to um, fighting the good fight against climate collapse. And if I'm going to have my press commit to cutting down, I don't know how many trees it takes to do a print run of this <laughs> book, then I better make it worth your while, not my while, your while, <laughs> right. right? I can't quite justify cutting down a tree unless it's going to save us from cutting down more trees, mm. right? It, it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not at all interested. I'm writing a book right now, and I just had a conversation with the great artist, Lauren Simpson, and I was like, Lauren, I don't know. I don't know. Why publish another <laughs> book? Why, right? Is it going to really help mm. is what I'm wondering. Um, I'm darker than I, I think I appear. You know, I, I don't know, yeah. you guys. I'm kind of, I'm a little bit iffy about humanity at this point. <laughs> yeah, I'm a kind of, I'm man. a little bit join like, I don't know. We're kind of like have this, this information that our planet's not going to be around for a lot longer and we won't survive. And we're like, you know, hairspray. And also taxes, you know. And dropping bombs on people, <laughs> you know, like, so I need a little bit more convincing Right now, I'm in a little bit of a dark mm -hmm. place because of our current time. That said, um, I, 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 the, my relationship to readers 
is so important to me. I know a lot of writers that don't give a shit about their readers. I actually care very deeply about my readers. And so I feel like if I'm gonna, if you're gonna give me your time, right? Simone Weil, the great uh, French philosopher said, attention is love, mm. right? Love is attention. If you're gonna give me your attention, which is a very beautiful thing for those of us who are going around talking about our abandonment issues and our narcissistic parents and every, uh, all the other ways in which we're fucked up, right? So if you're gonna give me your attention, I'm going to value it deliciously. Mm. And every word on the page is going to be just for you. That's, that's right? fantastic. And yeah. so in that way, the eye is not important to me at all, at all, right? I also, this is where I get, you and I both went, and we were talking about, Reza and I both went to Harvard Divinity School. You know, up until, I don't know, very way too late in my age, I thought that my ego was the eye. <laughs> you know, I thought that all of these grandiose thoughts and narcissistic thoughts I was having about myself were actually real. And then at some point you realize it's just your ego having its way with you. And so if I'm gonna use the first person on a page, I need to really interrogate what I'm doing with that eye because mm -hmm. if I'm just asking the reader to watch me in a peep show, that's not cool. Yeah. That's not cool, unless it's a good-ass peep show. <laughs> it's got to be a great peep show. It has show. to be a great peep show. But if it's not We'll talk great, about that later. Right. But if it's not, like, going to give them something to, yeah. this is not interesting to me. And I also think, you know, it's a capitalist inquiry as well. I don't really, you know, the, the whole myth of the individual is a very American myth. You know, in other countries, we don't have this great, oh, yes, pull you up by your bootstraps, let's just mm -hmm. go out and do that frontier and take all the land from all the indigenous people and you are a hero. They don't have that in a lot of other countries, yeah. you know? And so, I don't know, the whole hero, the exalted self as king, queen, my hero, all of that, I'm like, I'm not interested, get away, right? I just yeah. want to be regular. You know, I was born in Compton. I think that means something to me, right? That's right, yeah. So, you know, now it's very fashionable to be an activist. I'm about to get in a lot of trouble. I don't care. <laughs> Please, tar and feather me. Troll me all you want. Go for it. But, um, you know, but when I was growing up, I was born in 64, and the people who were changing the world through the civil rights movement didn't call themselves anything. They were mm. electricians. They were janitors. They were teachers. They worked at the post office. They were nurses. Yeah. They were, I don't know, you name it. And they were kicking ass and changing the world in the evenings and the afternoons and lunch and the weekends, mm. right? So they weren't going around saying, I am an activist, right? They were going around saying, hi, register to vote, right? Mm -hmm. Hi, meet me at the picket line. Hi, we're going, to going down south for the boycott. There was none of this grandiose, nobody was trying to be an influencer. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, what is that, right? It was like, we were trying, like, and I wonder about it a lot, you know, because I have a kid, you know, like, what's changing with our notion of the self? I'm sorry to go on, but it's a, it's a topic about which I feel very passionately, you know, in other traditions, you're taught to be suspicious of your ego. In this tradition, our tradition, our culture, we're taught to, yeah. we're taught to celebrate our ego. That's right. Right. Well, and, and I think that's absolutely fascinating. I also think that the other thing that it does is that by removing the I, it immerses you in this long history that you are 
um, revealing in a, in a completely new and, and uh, unique way. Yeah. And so it's it's so much. It, there's so much involved in it. Uh, I want to I want to come back to it in, in a minute. But you you talked about being born in, in Compton, but you were raised in New Orleans. No, right? we went no? back and forth to New Orleans. Oh, you went I was back and forth. Here, yeah. Do you have family in both places? Oh my is that God. What? Hundreds, hundreds. I don't even know them tell, all. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Oh my God, my childhood. Well, can I back up and say one thing? Sure. About the ego. Hilton, all the great writers, has this Love great Hilton. quote. Me too. Who doesn't? <laughs> I, told, I told him, you should just, start a, religion. just start a religion, please. <laughs> yeah. He has this great quote. He says, the ego, colon, what a racket. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's the school I live yeah. in. And, and so the first person is only... Yeah. A, a, a tool for me for writing. Clinton Hall is a great theater critic, uh, mostly for The New Yorker. Now he's the critic at large for The New Yorker. Wow. Yeah, big deal. Um, so tell me again what you had asked. Tell oh, us about uh, your childhood a little bit. Oh, man. Going back and forth between Compton and New Orleans. Yeah, to so. Pretty different cultures. No. No, really? Tell not me at what, all. Yeah. Because. You know, there's a thing amongst Louisiana people, we call it the L.A. L.A. migration, uh. right? And growing up, the way that you guys have Vietnamese restaurants and Korean grocery stores and Mexican taco stands, there were numerous, I mean, I don't know how many Louisiana restaurants growing up all around L.A. No, but like for real. Mm. And grocery stores. Like, I'm so mad right now. One of our favorite Hotlink uh, stand has just stopped making pork Hotlinks, and we're all <laughs> grieving, right? Because I've had them since I was, yeah. I'm sure, in the womb. I'm sure, right? <laughs> and now they're making them in healthy ways, and we're like, could you put the pork back, please? <laughs> um, so it was, it was nothing to have someone say, I'm going to go mm -hmm. to Joe's store and get some clabber. And clabber was a kind of cottage cheese, and it made the most terrific ice cream. And, you know, we sit there hand-cranking the ice cream, and my grandmother putting fresh clabber and fresh peaches off her trees. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty idyllic, which is why I really resist the notion of Compton as a site of anything other than exquisite yeah. violence and conflict and all of that stuff yeah. that it's kind of come that's come not the as, Compton yeah. I grew up in the Compton I grew up in was so fucking beautiful mm. it was so beautiful one out of three black people in Los Angeles at the time when I was born were from Louisiana one out of wow. three right so it was so intense that you had to check in with your parents or checking in with your aunties or your uncles before you dated somebody because they could easily be your cousin. <laughs> you have to be like, so. Yeah, just in case. Let's call that's a little genealogy conversation first. So and so, but you know, is he my cousin? Is she my cousin? Like, you know, that kind of thing. Everybody was related. Everybody knew each other. In fact, my parents met here. Um, that's a sweet story. My dad was on, um, he'd just come back from World War II, and he says that all the pretty girls had left New Orleans and come to L.A., <laughs> which was this whole myth about L.A. Mm. women, which I, you know. <laughs> um, but he was in a fish market, and he says he remembers the day he heard the bell ring of the door open. He says he just knew something about the bell, and then he hears this voice, Henry, is that you? And it wasn't, he goes, it was your great aunt, not his, not, not his aunt. And she said, what are you doing here? He goes, ah, we just got back from the war, which was total hell, right? And not only because it was war, but also because they served in the segregated army. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm looking for, we came out to date. And my aunt says, I have a niece you might want to <laughs> meet 53 years later. 
Wow. Yeah. So it was a community of migration, and it was extraordinary. Every, you know, people would come home from their jobs, horrible jobs or mediocre jobs, and everybody would get dressed in the evenings, kind of like they do in other, mostly Latino cultures, where everybody gets dressed and walks around the plaza, mm. right? The Zocalo, like that. It was like that, but it was L.A. and Central Avenue, right? And people would just walk down the streets dressed to the mm. nines. Um, I don't know. You knew everybody. Your doors were open. It was it was mm. it was fantastic. So that's why people go, "Wow, you're from Compton." I'm usually like, <laughs> "Yeah, yes, I'm from Compton, and you wish you were too." Well, I'm you curious know? what um, what the two cities, Compton and New Orleans, how they affected your work, your writing. I mean, what what did you draw from each of those? Oh, what a great locations. Uh, I think both. Um, you know, see, for me. I didn't feel like I lived in California. I lived in migration, oh. right? It, I'm just starting to arrive in mm. Los Angeles because our families, like most migrants, right, we're very close. So on the weekends, you have 60 people in a house, right? We didn't really interact with anybody except people we knew from home, right? And it was just extraordinary, but we were immersed constantly in the African-American Creole tradition of Louisiana, mm. um, you know, regardless of where we were. You know, I hear a lot of people, it's why post-colonial literature is so important to me and why it's influenced my work so much, because, you know, people take their homes with them. And the whole question of home then became completely, it, it just exploded. Mm -hmm. Because for me, home was New Orleans. I had never been there, right? But I knew that this, that LA wasn't home. I knew we were just here and that we were part of this migrational experience. And I knew from listening to the adults, because unlike parenting now, the parents didn't really shelter us from a lot. So we knew about lynchings. We knew about Jim Crow. We knew about, you know, horrific work conditions. We knew about police harassments. We knew about voter um, enfranchisement. So we knew about all these things and we knew we couldn't go back. Several of my uncles were wanted because they had participated in um, really beautiful actions against the police in New Orleans and Louisiana, right? So, you know, I remember my great uncle, God rest his soul, he just died, 104. He got whisked away in the middle of the night because he had the audacity to um, correct. He was a waiter. He had to wear mm. white gloves, which he hated, because he wanted to cover up all the black hands in restaurants mm. in Louisiana with white gloves, sick you know, quotidian sickness. It's just mm -hmm. everywhere. still a tradition it there. It still is a tradition yeah. there. And anyway, um, I forget his, one of his customers had asked him for a half of something, maybe a oyster and a half shot. I don't know. But my uncle, who had a very thick accent, with a little bit of tea creole in there, said, okay, so you want a half oyster. And the man said, nigger, you cannot say half. <laughs> and my uncle said, would you like a half oyster, right, or whatever it was. Yeah. And anyway, that was enough. The man gets up, his waiter friends swoop him away, run him to the train station, put him in the baggage, and he comes to LA and he never went back. Christ. That was quotidian though, that's yeah. what I'm trying to tell you, yeah. right? That's just one story amongst right. hundreds of thousands of people escaping the South because they were breathing while black, you know, serving a customer while black, you know, walking down the street while black. I have memories of my mother. My mother told me, oh yeah, 
you know, when I was a little girl, I was in Slidell, which is more rural, and off of Link Pontchartrain, and she said, and I came across a little boy hanging from a tree, and it made me so sad. Like, that was in my childhood psyche. So I knew I was in trouble. This is a long way of saying, I knew that wherever we were, we were not safe. Yeah. And I never felt safe. And then, okay, so here's Ellie stories. Um, I don't know how many people are in the room are from Los Angeles, but I remember very distinctly um, the election where Tom Metzger, who was a grand dragon for the KKK, ran, stomped the campaign trail fully hooded. I was a little kid, and he would be on TV in his little pointy hat. And of course, I knew what the Klan was, right? Campaigning to be the mayor of, of San Diego. That was our childhood, yeah. right? The LAPD would roll down our streets, guns drawn. And we're just trying to hopscotch. We used to play hopscotch with the shells, right? So it was a complete sight of terror, which is what my book is, right? It's yeah. very much like, it's, it's, I refuse to pretend that it, terror does not exist, that we don't terrorize each other. But at the same time, I was completely saturated in the most delicious love imaginable the most delicious love imaginable by not only my intermediate family, but my larger family, and then the neighborhood. It's so amazing what you're describing is almost schizophrenic. Like you're in yeah. this community that is most, that word. yeah, it's mostly black. It's, it's loving, it's uh, tight knit, yeah. it's empowered. Sure. Uh, but then out, just outside of this community, there's this entire world that is constantly uh, in, in conflict with it. That, that, yes. And I wonder how... I'm so happy you used the word schizophrenic because I feel that that is intrinsically what it means to be American for anyone of any race. Yeah, no, right? I, I and think you're right. Yeah. I, and so I'm, I'm, I appreciate that you saw that in my work because that's precisely what I was trying to... the experience I was trying to give the reader that uh, to affirm the kind of schizophrenia inherent in American identity and American experience. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I'm curious how, how you went about sort of forming your own identity and understanding who you were in the midst of this schizophrenia. I mean, I would imagine, uh, like a lot of writers, you probably relied on books and literature exactly. and stories. But I read somewhere that you were, you'd never been taught a single black author until college. Is that true? Oh, yeah. That's not... That's not, you guys, I'm starting to feel so old. I'm like, you guys, yeah, guys, and yeah, nobody yeah. else was either. Yes. What about, I mean, who, who were you reading? Were you, was, was there anyone that was helping you sort of figure out how to navigate this yes, insane and he, maze yes, that and was he, your life? Absolutely. My parents mm -hmm. and my aunts and uncles. And here is the beautiful thing about working class people that no one talks about, right? Because they're not activists. Right? My parents signed me up for every book club imaginable on my father's janitor's salary. So every month I would get, because we didn't have a library. We didn't have a library. I remember when it was built, right? And every um, month I'd get books in the mail. Books about, you know, great Afro-Americans, they were called, like, you know, little 32-page no yeah. books, you know, or George Washington Carver. You know, God bless those small presses. <laughs> you know, it's a tip, it's a very, distinct outpouring of literary activism that occurred after the civil rights movement. And I hope to God scholars are researching them because it's tiny little, you know, picture books, except they were like kind of revolutionary, you know? So you get all this black history in these little books written for children. And my parents clobbered me with them because the more I wanted, you know, 
I don't know about you guys, but there was a certain time that reading was such a, a precious thing, you know, because of the history of, you know, um, prohibitive literacy right. where black people weren't allowed to learn to read to write or write, right? So to have a book was a very special thing and we had hundreds and not, of them. And a book that's about you and your, your culture Absolutely. and your identity, Absolutely. the people that you recognize. Absolutely, right. Yeah. So in high school, right, I'm in AP English and my horrible teacher, Killer Keller, asked us to recite a poem and, sh and we're the only, in a, in a majority Asian, and black people are the second majority school, beautiful South Bay, um, LA school that's so diverse that we make, what, what was happening in the South Bay in the 70s makes any idea of diversity or inclusion look like white supremacy. Huh. I mean, it was so diverse, it was so incredible. That's why I feel also that's what my childhood was like. Everybody that was there, white people were the minority, and it was like 12 kinds of Asians, not just one kind of Asian. 12 kinds of Latinos, not just one kind of Latino, right? It was extraordinary. And we all got along and played and loved each other. That said, I, right, schizophrenia, I had an AP English teacher who hated our guts. She hated us. She let us know that she hated us. She was constantly saying horrible things to us. She constantly called us nigger. It was no big deal. LAUSD, welcome, mm. right? And I remember once she asked me to recite a poem, and I did by heart. And she goes, that's good, darling. Now, do you like grits? Can you tap dance? Oh, yeah. And it was so normative. It was so normative. That's the part. Was you know? it so normative that it's hard to even know what's happening in the moment? Or did you oh, know? Oh, I knew what was happening. Oh, she was a racist cunt. Yeah. Okay, that's what I was going to say. But you're like, at that moment, you're like, wait. Uh, okay. Right. Yeah. What was unfortunate about that is racism was the one thing that we couldn't retaliate against, right? So if a teacher, which they did often, like this was back in the day where teachers can still spank you and things mm -hmm. like that, and I got spanked often because I had a mouth, right? But if I got spanked, I could go home and say, Mommy, Mrs. So-and-so spanked me. And she would come up to the school and say, don't you dare touch mm -hmm. my child. But if I come home and say, mommy, Mrs. So-and-so called me a nigger, which I never did, because then that's a whole new level of, will my parents go to jail, which they would have. If I told my mother that a teacher had called me a nigger, my mother would be rotting in jail right now, right? Because she would have killed her, right? And there's that, those are those kinds of things you have to negotiate as a child who's um, filtering a lot of the world through a simple classroom, right? You understand that there's some crimes you cannot speak of mm -hmm. because you need to protect your family. And there's a lot of children in those, those situations every day now, mm -hmm. you know? You can't tell on adults if your parents are gonna be thrown in prison. So in the midst of all this schizophrenia, as, as we've said, <laughs> um, how did you discover poetry? I mean, and when you, when you first started to learn about writing and poetry, you, as you were saying, you didn't have a lot of black writers to, to sort of pull from. Um, I'm curious, who was it that first caught your attention? Margaret Walker. Tell she me more. She has an extraordinary poem called For My People. And it's this kind of exalted, praise song of black culture and black migration. And I remember, you know how, where were you when JFK was killed? Where were mm. you when this, like, I remember that moment. And this is what I felt as a, as a person who had 
been the victim of English, right? How old are you? Just to... mm, single digits, definitely. Okay. I don't know. The magical, right? You know, um, I remember going, wait a minute. She took English back. She took English from them, and changed it into a, her own language. Mm -hmm. A language you recognized. Uh, oh my God! Also, it's filled with adoration of history and culture. And up until that moment, anything that had anything to do with black people in print was slavery, you know, horrible civil hate rights, speech. politics. No, yeah. we, no, they weren't teaching you civil rights at that. Oh, no, no, mm -hmm. no. Why would you, you, you can't teach civil rights to kids because then they'll go up to grow up 10 <laughs> years later right. to continue the civil rights movement. They actually believe it, yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> they actually believe they have human rights. No, <laughs> right. no. Um, they were, it was older. But I, I just, it just struck me so deeply that you could, um, A, it affirmed what I had already known experientially, which is that there are many, many, many Englishes, right? There's not just one English. Mm. Um, and that if you're really talented and you really take your time, you can take English and you can turn it inside out yeah. and, and, and do something wholly, wholly, mm, I don't know, revolutionary is an understatement. Magical, like it can change the world. You know, I, I often mention this fact um, when I'm touring is Augustus, when he decided to cut off a bunch of senators' heads in Rome. See, this is why it's really hard for me to romanticize ancient Roman <laughs> yes. and Greek culture. Yes. I'm like, dude, your emperor cut off everybody's head. And Augustus And you guys threw the... babies over the cliff all the time. And Augustus was one of the saner ones. Oh, he was. He was yeah. actually... He I was actually, actually not bad. I actually like him, <laughs> yeah. as Roman emperors go. Um, but, you know, but when he got to Cicero, the great writer, so he took off everybody's head, just piles of heads on the restroom, right? But he got to Cicero, they cut off his hands too. So they cut off his head, and then they cut off both his hands, and they put his hands next to his head, right? Why? He was a writer, mm. and he's that powerful. It was too powerful, mm -hmm. right? That was my experience of Mar Margaret Walker. It was like, no, like just to say, though, it was just this profound aesthetic experience as a little black girl, blah, blah, blah. It's horrible how sentimental we are about girls and our childhoods. It's like, no, no, it wasn't a cute moment. It was a moment where the world split open, right? Because her skill was that profound, right? Did you also recognize at that moment the flip side, which is that, oh, language is a form of control. Oh, I knew that just from <laughs> being a black girl in America, huh. right? It's, I mean, it's so much a part of the, I mean, you, the work here. I'm sorry, it's really impossible to be indoctrinated by English and, and American education and not know that and language know is that, a form of control. Internally. I mean, again, I'm starting to sound so old, but I'm like, <laughs> this is when, you know, if you looked in the dictionary when we were kids, which we did often because we didn't know what we were, right? And we didn't know what we were because the language was so mm -hmm. heinous. It said, nigger, a black person. That was the definition for nigger in the dictionary when I was a kid. I mean, it was atrocious, right? And you, people don't think about it now because it's, it's such a different time. But during that time, the dictionaries were sites of terror, right? Yeah. So 
Was this the moment where you thought that maybe you want to do this too? That maybe you could wield language, not just as a, as yes. a mechanism of identity, yes. but as, as, a, as a form of power, as a, as a form of regaining control? You know, that sounds all well and good, and I'd like to say yes, but that but wasn't nine, who I so. was. <laughs> no, well, no, it wasn't about power. It was about adoration, you know? I didn't give a shit about white people and their hor the, the horrible way they, they treated us. It wasn't even worth my time. What I wanted, why I wanted to write after reading that poem was, I wanted to focus on celebrating culture, all cultures, right? Hate is boring to me as a topic. It doesn't deserve our attention. I love this new um, trend that's going around from different countries that when a mass shooter, um, when a mass shooting hop happens, they refuse to give the shooter what they want, which is their name in print. Right? I feel the same way about hate. I'm like, I'm not going to give you that. It's, it's so unbelievably boring. Mm -hmm. You want to impress me, love somebody. Love somebody. That's the hardest thing to do. Right? And I, and I grew up with, you know, my parents were staunchly pacifists, staunchly nonviolent. They were MLKers to, the, you know, to their death. And, so, and, and, and what we knew was that to be nonviolent was so much more difficult than to throw a bomb at somebody or to go, you know, whatever. It's like, you, you want to try something really hard? Try not to hate somebody, then talk to me, right? And that was, that was, that was more of our religious upbringing than anything else was nonviolence non and pacifism. So for me, looking at Margaret Walker's poem, all I thought was, I mean, wow. You know, she caught the cadences, you know, like this is another thing we don't talk a lot about is just the different ways in, in which black culture changes across the country. Right. So I grew up hearing a split of Afro Creole, which is very close to Haitian Creole and then Southern accents. So you'll have these great diction plays and great cadences. So one thing I love about going home to Louisiana is like, oh, come go stow at me now. And I would be like, Mom, what did she say? She said, let's go to the store. And I'm like, right. oh my God, right? So a really particular kind of patois in English, right? I wanted to exalt that, mm. you know? And I have to say there are poems in my book where that's exactly what I do. Yeah. Because, I, you know, you can only talk about this boring trajectory that humankind has been on for millennia for so long. I mean, really, it's like, really, another war? Okay. That's really fucking creative. You want to go kill everybody instead of actually sit down and have a conversation? Poetry is a way to have a conversation. Hey there, everyone. It's Reza. I'm sorry for the interruption. I just wanted to pop in and say that if you're enjoying this episode, well, then you're in luck, my friends, because Rough Draft is also a TV show. And you can watch it all right now, along with Topic's other original series and exclusive programming from around the world. You can check it out for free on the Apple TV app, which is already on your favorite devices. With Apple TV, you can watch Topic at home or on the go with offline viewing, and you can even share your subscription with up to six family members with family sharing, which is what I do because I have a gigantic family. Go to apple.co slash topic 
to start your seven-day free trial now. That's apple.co slash topic. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You have this quote from Marilyn Nelson. Mm. Um, it's this remark that she makes about how if one has the ear and one takes the time that even the front page of the newspaper is laden with sonnets. Yes. Right? This idea that everything is poetry, that you could find poetry in everything. And then you make this comment like you could find it in, in, on a cereal box. Yes. And I think, um, first of all, there's something beautiful and magical about that. And second of all, it raises another question, which is, well, then what the fuck is poetry? Absolutely. Like, what is it, actually? Fantastic. So what is it? Okay, I, I, I wanna, literally want to know. Um, I have so no idea. I want to back up. I, I can't, which shall I answer first? The, so the Marilyn Nelson well, yeah, question the, about yeah. uh, poetry being everywhere. So there's several ways to answer that, and we could geek out for hours <laughs> on this. Um, so uh, English is a very naturally, um, lends itself to what poetry geeks and any poetry historians call iambic pentameter, mm -hmm. right? So da 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 da. It's just how we speak, right? right? Um, and so it's really easy to find meter anywhere, right? There's dactyls, there's whatever, they're everywhere. Um, and it's also, if you guys just start paying attention to the way you talk, you're often speaking in iambic pentameter. It's, it's just a known thing, right? Um, that's why American modernists had such a hard time untraining the American ear. That's what they were trying to do. They refused to satisfy our indoctrination into pentameter, iambic pentameter, the I am, right? Um, so it's everywhere. That's my point. It's everywhere. And clearly, because I did a 79-page poem yeah. using the titles of artwork, right? So... Um, well, okay, so if poetry is everywhere, then what is a poet? Is a, is, a, is a poet a creator or is a poet a curator? Right, so uh, that's such a great question. And, and it, it, so you, you mentioned the fact that we both you know, have divinity degrees and, and uh, when, I, when I think about this idea, I can't help but bring it into the notion of how we were taught so often to think about like prophecy and what, yeah. what a prophet is. Yeah. That, that if you are the person, if you are the kind of person who believes in God and transcendence sure. and the supernatural and the mystical, then you believe that God is in constant communication with yes. humanity. Yeah. That there isn't anything extraordinary about a prophet. It's just a prophet is somebody who is who has tuned into the frequency. Mm -hmm. It's all there. We can all access sure. it. It's just this person did. Yeah. Is that then what poetry is? That a poet is the, is the prophet who is attuned to the movement and the sound of language, who can, who can capture it yeah, and, yeah. And, and then 
sort of present it in, in a new way. Sure. Is that what it means to be a poet? Well, I think there are lots of definitions of what a poem is. And there's lots of different kinds of poetry. So I think it depends on the person. I'll tell you what I think poetry is. I think poetry is an experience of silence. I think poetry is a very tricky way to seduce you into thinking it's about the words, but it has nothing to do with the words. Nothing. Mm. I want my readers, I, if I have an experience of something, for example, there's a poem in my book called On the Road to Sri Bhuvaneshwari. It's a long travel poem. It takes place in India. I used to live in India. Um, and one of the main characters is a water buffalo, right? And everybody's like, I really like the water buffalo, right? And I'm like, okay, whatever. It's a poem about grief. And finally, one day during a Q&A, someone said, what is that poem about? And I said, divorce. And everybody was like, what? It's about divorce. And I was like, you, they, like, you don't say anything about divorce. And I go, why should I? Mm. Right? Can you actually, anybody who's <laughs> truly been through heartbreak, can you say anything about heartbreak when it's happening? Can you put that into words? Think about it. Those of you who are actors, mm -hmm. go there. Go deep into your heartbreak, your most horrific heartbreaks. Where's the language for that? Mm. There is no language, right? And so you write around it instead, or I write around it instead. And so the reader doesn't know that I'm purposefully holding back the narrative, which makes it different from fiction, right? I, they just know that I'm kind of talking about some things, mm. right? But all around, the thing I'm writing about in the middle of that is profound grief and profound resurrection and profound celebration. Writing about it in an explicit way can make it almost maudlin. But for me, writing about it in an implicit way. Listen, there are a lot of, lot of poets who write about things explicitly, and I love their work. It's just not my style. No. So for me, what I'm hoping is. It's almost like the softest caress on your cheek, right? I want to take my readers and go, watch my hand, watch my hand. Watching my hand, watching my hand, <laughs> right that? And as they're watching my hand, I stroke them. Mm. And I want to leave them with that stroke. And I want to be so sneaky about it so that they feel possibility, possibility to go on with whatever life they're living, right? So then what were you trying to sneak into us with uh, The Sable Venus? The title it poem. Is, you mean the title poem? Yeah, sure. the title poem. So, I mean, it, it, is, it is, so much of it, of course, uh, involves the manipulation of the mm -hmm. words. The words mm -hmm. aren't changed. None mm -hmm. of the words are yours. They're mm -hmm. all found mm -hmm. words. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it has to do with mm -hmm. the manipulation of space. Mm -hmm. uh, you do admit that you... Uh, have your way with punctuation, yes. Um, which of course creates these uh, moments of profundity and moments in which the reader feels completely unmoored, and it and it redirects the 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 definitions and the translations. I think um, to one moment here that I'll just come to real quick, and it, it's that manipulation of space, like physical space yes. on the page, yes. that takes something that's mundane, yes. 
title and description yes. of a work of art yes. and suddenly infuses it with meaning. In yes. a grove of trees, slave woman wearing a runaway, period. Collar with two children, comma, emaciated, period. Negro man eating dead, period. Horse flesh in the background. I mean, I just, I'm, you know, it, it takes your breath away because you don't, you feel as though the ground has moved from beneath you. Yes. And it's just the removal of a period. Yes. The insertion of a comma. Yes. So, yes, I get it. So much of poetry is about what is unsaid, but is it also just simply a matter of the manipulation of space on a page? No, not at all. What's involved in that? How I do mean, you decide? So, you for decide? example, on that, that excerpt you just read, it's about the reader thinking they're reading about how horrible Western culture is, right? But really, it's me placing an experience of pure terror inside their psyche mm. by the time they get to the end of it. Do you understand that? Uh, I felt it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, sure, it's an interesting intellectual experiment in language. The book, sure. But I hope, more importantly, you know, that by the time you get to the end of it, that your skin's taken off. And then oh, yeah. you cannot in any way, in any way, make light of what the Western art tradition has done particularly to women, and then more specifically to black women, that it's not a light conversation, you know? And that's really important to me as a woman writer. I'm supposed to be writing about flowers and shit, you know? <laughs> and I want to write about flowers and shit, trust me. I want to write about sunflowers. I definitely do. But um, partly, I think, what also interests me, or what interested me about doing this project was I got to be in my head without apology. Like it was an intellectual experiment where I wasn't making nice, mm. you know? And not that there's anything wrong with making nice. I mean, you know, I talk about in this essay, there's a difference between pretty and beauty. I'm interested in beauty. Pretty is boring to me. Beauty is horror. Like when something's beautiful, say, here I go again, talking about love, right? If, if you meet someone who you find extraordinarily beautiful, I don't mean sexy, that's a whole other thing. It's fantastic too. But someone who's incredibly beautiful, like it takes your breath away, do you know? Mm -hmm. um, I wanted that poem to function in that way. It's like, yes, yes, we can make nice and all, but you know, it's a waste of time. I love the way that you were just talking about it. And maybe it's just because I live way too much up here and mm. not enough in here. Mm. But as I was reading it, it occurred to me that this is a new kind, this is a new way of telling history. I mean, I, I read- You mean the poem itself? Yes, yeah, yeah the, 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 the title poem. I read it like I was reading a, a, a work of history. And sometimes you, you sense that history just even in a single passage. Yes. Um, one of my favorite moments is, um, you are describing a work of Egyptian art. Um, the, the work itself, of course, is chronological. Mm -hmm. I mean, you do start you know, with the oldest material first and, right. and, and move to the most contemporary. And so this is the, this is the moment in which you're, you're very early on and you're talking about seeing uh, uh, an Egyptian figurine. And also, I should also mention here, uh, just as an aside, 
The other thing that I, there's a lot that I love about this, but one of the things that I love is that at no point do you understand what the medium is that you're looking at. I mean, yes. is it a painting? Is right. it a sculpture? I have right. no idea right. what I'm looking at, which I immediately get is the point. Exactly. I get it. Exactly. I got that right away. It's exactly. so good. Exactly. Um, so I don't know what I'm looking exactly. at. Exactly. But here's how it's described. And all you've done is taken, again, the simple catalog description that we all see when we walk into a museum and our eyes immediately go to that little tiny yeah. card because we need to know. Tell me, we need tell to me how told, to understand. Yeah. Right, tell me to how to understand at. what I am seeing because right. I can't right. see it, do right. it myself. Right. Tell me what to think. Exactly. And what you've done is by just simply rearranging the sentence, you tell an entire history in eight lines. And here it is. Her head is that of a lioness, the short mane of a feline. That's what I'm looking at. I can see it. The disc on her head identifies her as the daughter of the sun. Very common, uh, mm -hmm. especially for black women mm -hmm. uh, as goddesses, mm -hmm. uh, as, as uh, uh, objects of, of worship. Sure. That's what I'm looking at. Now I sure. understand. That is what I'm looking at. The statue of a revered black woman. King Amenhotep III, very important uh, pharaoh, commissioned hundreds of statues of this particular goddess for his mortuary temple in western Thebes, brought to England in early 1800s. So stolen as loot, got it. The statues were exhibited in the recesses oh of Waterloo Bridge. Oh, got it. Presented as exactly. a, uh, a work of exoticism that we now own, understand. Right. Yep. Right. And later by Lord Amherst on the terrace of his country house and finally displayed, displayed as a prize. Yeah. Holy shit, that's the entire exactly. history of how exactly. we understand the black exactly. woman's body in exactly. a single catalog exactly. description. Exactly. I mean, that's just fucking fantastic. Exactly. And that was on one plaque. <laughs> yeah. Right? And, I, and there were so many moments during my research that I would go, does that say, <laughs> does that say what I think it says? And is it really just a title? Yeah. Just remove it from its context. <clears throat> Are we really supposed to read that and bit. not yeah. slit our throats? Yeah. Are we really supposed to read that and not die it's, from it's despair? It's astonishing, right? Yeah. We're just supposed to be like gallivanting through the museum and read that and go, huh, interesting statue. And so you know? maybe, maybe that's what poetry is. Poetry and the poet's role is to force us to rethink the meaning of words, to, to see them in a different light, to see them in a different context. The idea that you can take a sure. dry catalog entry sure. that we all would read and we all would say, oh, well, that's, that's fascinating. Sure. To remove it, to rearrange it, and then to make me realize, fuck, sure. this is so much more than I thought it was. Now it's emotional, it's no longer intellectual. Exactly. That's exactly. what poetry is. Yes, sometimes. <laughs> I, think th I think that poems really are different things at different times. Like, I mean, could you say what a painting is? What, what painting is generically? I can't. Some painting is that, some painting is that. I think there are lots of, there's so much diversity, aesthetic diversity in poetry that it could be many things. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought up language because... Uh, you know, poetry is an art of language. As much for me, it is an art of silence. You use the language to get there. Partly, 
what I love to do is to play very meticulous attention to a line or sentence to seduce the reader, right, with well-placed words so that they keep reading, mm. right, but also so that they have an exquisite experience of language. I want the reader to go, that's a nice word. Damn. That's a yeah. nice word. <laughs> do you know? I kept doing that. I kept putting the book down and going, damn. <laughs> But do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I don't know about you guys, but that's the kind of reader uh, somebody I am. Who has, that's how I read. In love with words, right? Yeah, I don't want to exactly read. I don't want to read a boring ass book, <laughs> right? Yeah. I want. Yeah. I want to open the from the first page. You know, I want to read the first page of a book and go, "Whoa, okay, <laughs> I'm gonna sit down for a minute, right? At least read the first page for yeah. a second. I want all yeah. books to do yeah. that, and I want all my poems to do that. So, as a as a work of history, if, yeah. To, it's also kind of depressing because you get to the end of it and you can't help but feel, Jesus, I just read, you know, 40,000 years of history and nothing has changed. That it's just the same story, the same experience over and over again. I mean, when we look at sort of the bodies of black women as the canvas upon which we project an entire society's values, and mores and faults and virtues and vices sure. instead of actually thinking of it as like an actual sure. human being sure. with independence and sure. sovereignty sure. um i just feel like good god we're still there have we have we advanced at all i mean you, you, know, you were talking about earlier about being don't ask a little bit question. depressed i get it <laughs> but here we are you know president pussy grabber and next thing you know exactly that's <laughs> i was thinking the same thing i mean but see for me how do I put this? Conversations like this bore the fuck out of me. Mm. You know, it's like conversations like, is our president racist or not? It's like, would you <laughs> stop? So stop funny. wasting yeah. our time, start wasting the trees to print the papers, yeah. start, wasting, start wasting the digital, digital space. We need to accept, we need to accept that we are a profoundly racist country. All of us, mm. all of us. It's not, even, it's not even information. We're still wondering whether we're racist or not. We are fucking racist. It's as simple as that. It's not, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's boring. It's boring. Yeah. Are, we, are we diseased by gender? Absolutely. We only have two genders. How fucking boring is that? <laughs> what, what are you talking about? I feel like a man lots of the time. <laughs> and then something else in between and 20 other genders as well, right? People said that 200 years ago. Virginia Woolf said, in the 1920s, perhaps there are three genders, right? We're so headstrong in ignoring our own experience. We're so headstrong in not acknowledging what we all know to be true. That's what poetry means to me. Mm. If, I, you know, if I can add one more definition. Poetry means to me is telling the truth, right? Yeah. You know you're scared. I know I'm scared. You know you're gonna die. I know I'm gonna die. So can we please stop wasting each other's fucking time, mm. right? I start, I start all my classes with my students, regardless of age, we talk about death. That's how we, first day, we're talking about mortality. Mm. Poetry is an art of mortality, right? Just like photography is an art of mortality. You can say that politely and say poetry is an art of memory, but we know we meet death, right? right? So instead of wasting our having conversations about all this stupid shit about whether or not we're racist or hateful or violent, right? I mean, people said that 3,000 years ago, 
right? Philosophers have been talking about how incredibly hateful human beings are as a species forever. It's not new. So don't ask me to entertain a conversation about this. Ask me anything but that, in fact, you know? Ask me how are we gonna get through our hatefulness? Well, then, I, then, then, I'm, then I'm willing to have that conversation, right? Yeah. Not, are we hateful? That's right, stupid. Right, right, right. Right? The conversation I'm more interested in is like, well, how does hate feel to me? How, how, what do I struggle with, right? And what do you struggle with? But we're not having those tender conversations because it takes too much fucking courage, you know? Too much courage. For a man, especially, masculinity is so toxic right now, for a man to lay down take off all that armor and go, baby, I'm mm. scared. Get, let's start there, and then I'm interested. If we're not starting in complete vulnerability, I'm bored out of my fucking mind. What's the role of not just the poet, but the writer in bringing this about, in changing well, the conversation? So this is, this is fantastic in terms of craft, right? Because, so I'm gonna geek out people. Um, there's a thing in poetry called the turn, right? Not every poem has a turn, but a lot of poems have a turn. And basically a turn is, it's really from the sonnet, but a turn is when, you know, you get to a moment in the poem where the writer literally does something completely surprising yeah. and you didn't see it coming. It's like a shift in emotion. It's a, or shift, a shift in emotion. In tone, or even a shift in addressing. It's a, it's yeah. a shift in address. Go read any poems and you'll see their turns everywhere. I think of the turn as a door. I think of it as an aesthetic moment where the poem says to me as its writer, so this is all well and good. You wrote those cute little eight lines. Are you going to stop bullshitting now? Mm. Like, I feel like the poem says that to me. So are you going to tell the truth? This is really interesting. The yes, racism is bad, right? Yes, sexism is horrible. Yes, people are horrible. Yes, yes, yes. And what? What about you? I feel like that's what the poem says to me. And then I have to get, okay, here's what about me. Right? And that's where poetry as a craft for me mirrors completely the experience of being alive. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if I'm writing honestly and if I am writing courageously, then my reader, I hope, never feels that I'm talking down to them, even if they're horrible people, right? They never feel that I'm being didactic, I hope. Mm -hmm. I think I fail sometimes because sometimes just people need to be told some shit, right? right. But um, I hope what my reader feels is me holding out my hand and going, I know, it's scary, I know, mm -hmm. come on, mm -hmm. come on. Mm -hmm. And hold me too, hold my hand too. We, can, we, can't, we have to do it together, we can't do it separately. So that's my definition of a poem, right? but I don't know how to put that into words, so I write them instead. So Robin, as you know, we like to end our episodes of Rough Draft with what we call the five questions. Very simple questions. You'll have no problems with this whatsoever. Just first thing that comes to your mind. Okay, number one, what's your favorite book? The Mahabharata. I love the Mahabharata. I know. <laughs> love the Mahabharata. Yeah, so, so awesome and violent and it's fantastic. Uh, the Ramayana within it too is, is sure, incredible. Yeah. Um, what's your writing process? Uh, I am trying to find as much quiet as possible. <laughs> so I'm, or really beyond quiet, silence. I'm going for silence. Mm -hmm. So usually I try to clear my head with some diary writing. I've been a diarist since I was 14. Um, 
So I usually write in my diary for an hour or two. And then at some point, I don't know about you, but eventually it just leaps off into metaphor. And then once I do that, I can put it away. Right. And then I start writing. Um, learning to turn off the phone. It's really hard to turn off the phone if you have a kid. Yeah. I'm always worried that he's fallen and broken his leg or something on the playground. So I keep the phone on, but I only answer if it's a school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I walk around a lot. Mm-hmm. I talk out loud a lot. I'm sure anybody looking into my home would think I was a <laughs> complete, crazy person. Yeah, totally. I'm that writer that paces and says words out loud. Right. Um, I also work in the middle of the night sometimes. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Um, if I can't sleep, I'll get up and work. If you weren't a writer, what would you be? Ah, great question. Uh, can I answer that in threes? <laughs> sure. An archaeologist for sure. So, you know, I've talked about this. I used to be a Sanskritist in another That's life. That's right. And you even so, talk about poet, your poetry as a kind of archaeological yes. enterprise. Every now and then I start to get really sad. It's like, made the wrong choice. <laughs> I should have been an archaeologist. I'll find out about some great dick happening mm. or some great archaeological discovery. And I'm like, oh. But then I remember the power of the pen. It's like, oh, you want to go excavate that area? Do it. You can do it on the page. You can do it and write about it. So I keep coming back to how powerful it is to be a writer. Mm. I can go anywhere, anytime, any place with my imagination. Um, I would also very much love to be a park ranger. Or I tell myself I would love to marry a park ranger. (laughs) And then I can write my poems in our little cabin and grow a garden. No bears. No place where there are bears. But... um, And third? um, A midwife. Mm. Yeah. I I went back and forth between that two. And then I realized, again, with poetry, you are a kind of midwife. Mm. Um, So basically poetry is all things to me. (laughs) Right. It's every profession wrapped into one. What's the worst writing advice you've ever gotten? Mm. God, that's such a great question. Again, several answers. Uh, write what you know. Everybody's, everybody's told, <laughs> write what you know. Yeah. And I really think it's important to write what you don't know. Uh-huh. And, and, and be afraid on the page, because that's where the real rich work mm-hmm. comes. If you're like all cocky and confident, oh yeah. It's like, okay, then your, your reader's gonna think you're cocky and confident. Mm-hmm. I guess it's not interesting. Um, I, or write what you know, write about what you know in a way that you don't know about it, mm-hmm. do you know? Like, I was reading a very beautiful poem by Toy Derricott uh, this week, a poem I love, and it's about, the scene is a student is talking to her about how much she doesn't fit in in her particular cultural context. And she has all this anxiety about that. And she wants to write about that. And she wants to say, I want to write about that, right? But Toy in the poem says, why don't you write about being afraid to write? Hmm. Right? That's what I'm trying to say. Like, don't write what you know about a thing. Write what you don't know about that thing that you think you know so much about. That's much more interesting mm. to me. Well, you kind of answered the last question, but I'll ask it anyway. What's the best advice that you could give to a young writer, um, an emerging voice? 
speaking of Toy Derricotta, I have Toy Derricotta on my brain right now. Um, but she's also the co-founder with Cornelius Edie of an incredible foundation called Cavi Canham, which is a black poetry foundation. And I was a fellow. I had the great luck, after four years of trying to get in, of being accepted to the fellowship. And Toy's thing is this, and I take it with me everywhere I go. Your weakness is your greatest strength as a writer. Wow, that's good. Your weakness is your greatest strength. That's or good. write the hard poem. Write the heart. Write the thing. Whatever you're most avoiding, that's where you want to go. It's very Tibetan Buddhist in that way, right? Whatever you're avoiding, that's your poem. Whatever Jamaica Kincaid said to me, I studied with her once at Harvard. Um, she said, whatever you're ashamed about, write about that, right? That's good. And so it's a totally different way that's of good. writing yeah. as opposed to writing like I was the like... thing you know best. Well, not only that, but it's <laughs> like, you know, it's like the activist thing. It's like, yes. You know, America is horrible. It is. And it's also beautiful. But you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's just so easy. It's, it's such an easy out. It's like, write something else. Like, so for me, you know, what that would look like is I would write about, instead of saying America is horrible or whatever, I would write about how I had recurring nightmares throughout all my childhood that lions, tigers, and bears would be walking down my street in clan hoods. That's much more interesting. Mm -hmm. Do you see? I see. It's been an incredible pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for it's coming here and, and sharing your thoughts. It's, it's been my pleasure. absolutely amazing. Thank the you. book, again, is called Voyage of the Sable Venus. Robin Costa Lewis, everyone. Thank you. Now. We actually have a very special treat tonight. We're going to do something a little bit different than we do here on Rough Draft. Uh, when I first asked Robin to be a, a guest on the show, she said that she would do it under one condition, and that is that if we invited more poets onto the show. And we are both uh, adamant about making sure that poetry continues, that, that young people especially understand the power of poetry. And it turns out we're also both big fans of an L.A.-based organization here that yes. does exactly that, an yes. organization called Get Lit, yes. right? Um, for people who are unfamiliar with Get Lit, uh, it was founded in 2006 by poet and actor Diane, Lane, uh, Diane Luby Lane, excuse me. Um, and it basically uses poetry to uh, increase literacy, to empower youth, uh, inspire communities. And uh, it teaches something like 50,000 students a year. And the best thing about it is that it has now spawned, you know, people who have gone through this program, it has now spawned some extraordinary talent. Yes. And we were lucky enough to have two of yes. uh, Get Lit's probably most prominent voices here yes. with us. And we're gonna spend a little bit of time listening to their work. Fantastic. Uh, we're gonna listen to two poets. Uh, first, we're gonna listen to uh, an incredible poet that I first saw online. She just blew my mind, Markeisha Babers. Yes. Um, and then we're gonna listen to uh, a friend of the show, somebody who was part of our very first season uh, of Rough Draft, Monique Mitchell. So yes. let's give it up for Monique and Markeisha. When you have a ghost for a mother, you learn silence speaks in tongues. Your voice echoes in our halls. 
a holy hallelujah. Praise be the hips that bent for me to be here. Broken, a bloodied Christ. A body broke itself so I might know life. Praise be the breast I suckled before the holy war claimed you martyr, claimed them cancerous, claimed you crucified. I rolled the stone away and was met with your absence, drank absinthe and was met with your spirit. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be the body I crawl back into until communion when we break again. This time I am your mother. You named me Monique, Madonna, mother of Christ. I wear a crucifix over my heart, a reminder. The day you gave your life here, you will rest your woolly head. I will swaddle you with the same arms I crawled out of you with. I will wash your feet with the same hands I prayed to you. I prayed to you. Watch the sky for your return, I waited. Sought signs in suit of candles burn, I buried my blood with the roses. I weeped like willows, like Mary on the mount, her son with the crown of thorns, 33 when you were crucified. God's children grow wings too soon. When you have a ghost for a mother, you learn silence speaks in tongues. Your voice echoes in our halls. A holy hallelujah. People only see me as that girl, that fat girl, just a little too black girl, always sitting in the back girl, that girl. People tell me, you're weak, girl. No one wants to hear you speak, girl. Look at me. I'm not at your feet, girl. Stop crying, girl. It's not like you're dying, girl. No one would like you for who you are. And your career definitely won't go far. Not with that hair, those clothes, those shoes. You really need to change all of you, girl. Sometimes I tell myself, you know, depression ain't cute, girl. And you stop waiting and do what you have to do, girl. I mean, if you're going to end it, then do it already, girl. Just make sure you keep your hands steady, girl. You want to get it right, girl. Just wait till night, girl, to get the knife, girl. It only takes one slice, girl. Look at you. Too weak to take your own life, girl. But God told me, aren't you tired of waiting to die, girl? All you have to do is try, girl. I gave you life to live, girl. I gave you your gift to give, girl. I am always here, girl. It's okay to shed a tear, girl. Just don't fear, girl. Because you are that girl. Made strong enough to carry the world on your back, girl. So stand up straight, girl. You will be great, girl. It is your fate, girl. Don't worry about the past. Remember, who is first shall be last. So you've endured the worst, girl. Now it's your turn to be first girl then God held out his hands he said take this girl don't waste it girl you'll know when to use it girl it's a miracle girl like you you are a miracle girl I told you that that was gonna take your breath away. Did I not tell you that? Thank you so much to my guest, Robin Costa Lewis. You can follow her at Robin Costa Lewis. 
and you should really pick up a copy of The Voyage of the Sable Venus. It's extraordinary. Thank you also to Marcasia Babers. She can be found at L-A-D-I-3-L-Y-R-I-X. That's Lady3Lyrics. And you can follow Monique Mitchell at M-N-Q-M-T-C-H-L-L. Monique Mitchell and Markeisha Babers. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. I'll see you next time on Rough Draft. Rough Draft is a topic original series hosted by me, Reza Aslan. Executive produced by Reza Aslan, David Andrioni, Alfredo De Villa, and Safa Samizadeh Yazd. Executive producers for Topic are Ryan Chanitry, Anna Holmes, and Gina Konstantinakos, with production aid from Russell Sperberg. Our music and theme is by Jacob Snyder, sound by Sean Oakley, editing and mixing by Will Stanton, with additional editing by Blake V. You can follow Rough Draft on Twitter at Rough Draft Reza, on Facebook at Rough Draft with Reza Aslan, or you can email us at roughdraftpodcast at topic.com. You can also follow me, Reza Aslan, at Reza Aslan. For transcripts and a list of full credits, go to topic.com slash rdpodcast. If you love this interview, be sure to check out our TV show, as well as Topic's original series and exclusive programming from around the world. Try it for free on the Apple TV app already on your favorite devices. You can watch Topic at home or on the go with offline viewing, and you can also share your subscription between up to six family members with family sharing. That's what I do. Go to apple.co slash topic, that's apple.co slash topic to start your seven-day free trial now. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Rough Draft. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.